0: would invite you to turn with me in your copies of God's Word to John chapter 7. If you're using the Pew Bible in front of you, it's page 892. <clears throat> John chapter 7, where we'll be looking at verses 1 through 31 together this morning. Before reading God's Word, let's go to the Lord in prayer together. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we have so much to be thankful for as a called out and redeemed people who have been given this sure deposit of your word of truth, a word that has been passed down to us throughout the ages, preserved in its integrity by the faithful work of the Holy Spirit, and we acknowledge our need for your sovereign grace As we read, as we study this text of Scripture this morning, we ask for your blessing upon our time and your word together, and it's in the name of Christ that we pray. Amen. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, "'Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world, for not even his brothers believed in him.'" Jesus said to them, "'My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil.'" you go up to the feast. I am not yet going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, he is a good man, others said, no, he is leading the people astray. but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, is not this the man whom they tried to kill? And here he is speaking openly and they say nothing to him. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, he will do more signs than this man has done. This is the word of our Lord. I imagine that if you were to ask the average person what he or she believes about Jesus, the reply would probably be something along these lines. He was a great man, filled with love and compassion. He told us not to judge one another. He was full of tolerance, and he told us to love others as we love ourselves. He was all about inspiring people to be the best that they could be. But even a cursory reading of John's gospel portrays a Jesus that is much different than this. In chapters 5 and 6 of John's gospel, the momentum of Jesus' public ministry has sort of been building with the healing of an invalid who had been in this condition for 38 years to the amazing display of power as he feeds the crowd of 5,000 and heals those who have various needs. But then he begins teaching, saying things like, you must believe in me. I am the bread that has come down from heaven. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. And these statements are surprising to the crowd. They're shocking. Utterly offensive to those who hear them. And then we read at the end of John chapter 6 that the crowds that had flocked to Jesus, they all begin to leave. Even those who had numbered themselves among His disciples begin to leave. They can't handle these words any longer. They are too difficult for them. And yet 12 remain. For as Peter says there at the end of John chapter 6, no one else has the words of eternal life. You are the Holy One of God. And so it's this polarizing nature of Jesus' words that draws true disciples to himself while driving away those who come to him with the wrong motives. So you see, while many might think that Jesus brings out the best in people, Sinclair Ferguson points out that Jesus actually had the habit of bringing out the worst in people. It's the claims that Jesus makes about his own identity that are polarizing and divisive. They create conflict that leads to opposition. He clearly does not say what people want to hear. And so the audiences become enraged, even wanting to kill him. But there's a reason for this conflict. It's not like Jesus is just going around seeking to pick a fight with whomever he can. There's a reason for the divisive, heart-exposing, offensive words of Jesus. It's because he is calling people to genuine faith in himself. And we will not come to faith in him until we realize that by nature we do not trust him. By nature we are hardened against him. By nature we are not drawn to his words and we do not find comfort in the things that he says. And so as the worst within us is exposed by the words of Jesus, our presumption, our pride, our arrogance, our self-righteousness, the belief in our own intellectual aptitude, as Jesus begins to expose those layers of unbelief within our heart, many begin to reel and pull away. But he is lovingly, tenderly showing us our need for faith, and our need to trust in him. No scalpel taken to rotten flesh will be pleasant at the time and would cause us to pull away. But without that painful work, The only result will be further destruction. No one will ever come to trust in Jesus as Savior until they see their need for a Savior, until they see their need for salvation. And it's the words of Jesus throughout John chapter 7 that reveal our need for salvation as they expose the unbelief within our own hearts So what is the context in which we find Jesus engaged in this heart-revealing instruction, in this polarizing instruction? And that's our first point this morning, Jesus at the Feast of Tabernacles, Jesus at the Feast of Booths. Now, this Feast of Tabernacles, as it falls upon the Jewish calendar, is roughly six months after the Passover. It was back in John Chapter 6, when Jesus fed the 5,000, that event was just before the Passover feast. And it was then that he launched into that bread of life discourse. And so in John's gospel, there is roughly a six-month gap between the end of chapter 6 and the beginning of chapter 7. And although John doesn't record this for us, Jesus is actively ministering in the northern region of Israel in Galilee. And even ventures beyond the geographical boundaries of Israel into the Gentile lands to teach. We read the reason why Jesus has remained in the north. We read it here in verse 1. That the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now this is not just John's editorial comment. Jesus is fully aware, fully aware of the intent of the crowd. We Read in verse 19. Jesus says that they are seeking to kill him but I think that begs the question, why are they seeking to kill him? Well, back in chapter 5, Jesus healed a man, again, who had been an invalid for 38 years, telling him to take up his mat and walk. And the day of the week in which he performed that miraculous event was on the Sabbath day, and that infuriated the religious leaders to the point that they wanted to kill him. We read in John 5 verse 18 that they were seeking to kill him not only because he was breaking the Sabbath, but because he was making himself equal with God. And So the hatred that these religious leaders have toward Jesus is a hatred that just continues to build throughout John's gospel until they hand him over to be crucified. Now, the Feast of Tabernacles was one of, if not the most celebrated holiday among the children of Israel. It was a feast of thanksgiving that was held after the harvest season, a time in which they could look back on the Lord's faithfulness to provide for their daily needs. It was a time of remembrance as they also looked back upon the Lord's faithful care for their forefathers in the wilderness. In fact, the people would flock to Jerusalem And they would live for the entire week of the festival in makeshift booths, reminding them of the way in which their ancestors had traveled in the wilderness all of those years, living as a pilgrim people in tents or in booths. There would be sacrifices of bulls each day during the festival, reminding the people of their need for atonement of sins. There was a ceremony in which the priest would take water from the pool of Siloam and walk into the courtyard of the temple, pouring the water at the base of the altar, reminding the people of the Lord's provision of water from the rock. At night in the inner courtyard of the temple, the majestic candelabras would be lit, illuminating that whole inner area. Reminding them of the pillar of fire that guided their forefathers by night in the wilderness. A picture of the Lord's presence and his faithful guidance. It was truly a joyous occasion. It was a solemn festival in which the present day Israelites were actively being reminded of that significant event from redemptive history. But there was also, we could say, a dark side to the Feast of Tabernacles. The reason there were 40 years of wilderness wandering was because their forefathers failed to trust in the Lord. They failed to believe in His ability to deliver and provide. And that entire generation who was released from slavery died before entering the land of promise. They died because of their grumbling and complaining against the Lord. And the people of John's day are exactly the same. We read there in verse 12 that the crowd is muttering, murmuring, complaining as well, just like their forefathers did. And so, yes, it was 40 years of God's faithfulness and patience, but it was also 40 years of God's judgment because of their rebellion and disobedience. Of the million-plus Israelites who are redeemed from slavery, only two of them make it to the promised land. And so, what Jesus does at the Feast of Booths is he capitalizes upon this particular setting of the annual feast by pointing out that he is the substance, that he is the reality of all of these shadows, all of the things that were pointed to back in the desert. All of the things that the feast itself points to are fulfilled here in the one who is standing before them. He is living water. He is the bread from heaven. He is the light of the world. He is the definitive sacrifice for sins. He is the only way to peace with God. He is the faithful and true Israel where the children of Israel were faithless. And here again, we are struck with the irony of Jesus, that He is both attractive and divisive. People flock to Him. They want to be around Him. They are enamored with Him, and yet at the same time, they are greatly divided over Him. Who is He? What should we think of Him and the claims that He makes? What should our response be to Him? The reason that there's so much division over Jesus is because He's a marvelous teacher He performs amazing and wondrous, miraculous signs. He is filled with compassion and love towards others. Who's going to argue against those things? But then he makes outrageous claims. He claims to be the Lord of the Sabbath. He claims to be one with God the Father. He claims to be sent by the Father into this world. He claims to always be doing the will of his Father. He claims to be a substitute and sacrifice for sin. He claims that life is found in him alone. He claims that we must feed upon him if we are to find life. And so what we're left with is people that are attempting to divide Jesus. Here in John 7 and even in our own time, people that are okay with certain aspects of Jesus, okay with some of the things that he says and, of course, the things that he does, but claims that he makes about himself and the response that he demands of us, those are the things that people have trouble with. And that brings us to the brothers of Jesus and how they respond to his claims. And that's our second point this morning, the unbelief of Jesus' brothers. See, the thinking of Jesus' brothers is pretty straightforward and seemingly practical probably similar to our own thinking if we had been there. They look at Jesus and they say to him, Listen, Jesus, you missed that opportunity some six months ago. You had the enthusiasm of the people, but you absolutely blew it when you began teaching. Thousands were flocking to you. You need to go down to the Feast of Booths. Put on a display of power. Regain that momentum that you lost. You had some popularity, but you just didn't play your cards right. And so here's your opportunity to sort of relaunch your campaign. But his brothers don't say this because they're trying to be an encouragement to Jesus. They're not trying to truly help him. They're not thinking in a godly manner. John tells us in verse 5 that not even his brothers believed in him. They're not even his brothers. You see, if anyone should have believed in him, it was the brothers of Jesus who grew up with him. And we know that after the resurrection of Jesus, some, if not all of his brothers, put their faith in him. We read in Acts chapter 1 that the brothers of Jesus are there with members of the early church, worshiping the risen and the ascended Lord. We read in 1 Corinthians 15 that Jesus appeared to his half-brother James, who responded by putting his faith in the risen Lord. But at this point, the advice that they give to Jesus is obviously not God-centered, wise advice. Their thinking is entirely worldly. Do amazing things as quickly as you can in order to get a large following. Isn't that what leadership and influence is all about? So whether the brothers had in mind someone who was a religious leader, a political leader, a social leader, they are only thinking in terms of worldly categories. you see, if this was Jesus' goal, if his aim was really to lead the people into some sort of new religious, political, social movement, then the reality is he was an utter failure. Because every time he opens his mouth, The people leave. He seems to turn away the crowds by pushing them to address their hearts, by challenging them to consider their standing before God, by showing them their need for atonement. He is after the hearts of men, he is after true disciples. He is not after numbers for numbers' sake, he is not about influences as far as the world is concerned. And notice in verses 6 through 8, that John records the reason why the brothers are filled with unbelief. Jesus says, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not yet going, for my time has not yet fully come. Their thinking is entirely worldly, and driven by their agenda. Jesus is driven by the will of his Father in heaven. Everything that he does is carefully planned and executed according to the eternal counsel of the Father. His brothers are living according to their timing, Jesus says. In other words, they are living according to their own will. And this is the fundamental difference between the Lord Jesus and the fallen human race. Jesus lives for the glory of God. Jesus lives for God's timing. Jesus lives his life consciously in the loving hands of his heavenly father. The world lives for the self. The world lives for its own agenda and for its own purposes and for its own timing. And if the world doesn't hate you, then it could be that you are living with the world's priorities It's later in John chapter 15, verse 18, that Jesus says, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you are of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. The world hates Jesus because he testifies to the evil of the world. The world does not want to hear the truth. It only wants to hear what it wants to hear. And the world will only grow in hatred toward the Christian who stands for truth because the world wants to believe that it's our own desires that shape and determine reality. Perhaps some of you saw, this was I think just a number of months ago, an individual who went to a college campus in Washington State And in a spirit of tolerance, which is ripe upon our college campuses, asked a number of students various questions about his own self-identity. What if I choose to think of myself as a nine-year-old boy, he said. Well, if that's fine with you, then that's okay with me. What if I choose to think of myself as a woman? Well, who am I to say otherwise? If you want to think of yourself as a woman, I don't want to damage your fragile psyche, so go ahead and think of yourself as a woman. What if I want to think of myself as a six-foot-five woman? Oh, again, that's fine. What about a six-foot-five Chinese woman? And you, Christian, by believing that the man talking to you is a 5'10 white male, believing in something objective will only be ridiculed and despised. This is the world in which we live. Hatred toward those who might identify themselves with Jesus. Hatred toward those who look to the authority of God's word and believe its truth. The unbelief expressed in the words of Jesus' brothers captures not only the sentiment of today, but perhaps it captures a level of unbelief within your own heart. Perhaps you look at your own circumstances in life and say to yourself, Jesus, I have a wonderful plan for you in my life. Here is what you ought to do. Jesus, I have some perfect suggestions on people around me that you could go ahead and change. Jesus, if you want people to trust in you, why not exercise an amazing display of power? Why not change the hearts of those who are in positions of power and influence so that they might be vocal for the gospel and turn things around in this world? How often we live from the point of view of human calculations. But this is not what Jesus is about. And his brothers are kept from belief because they are absorbed by the priorities of the world. They are welcomed by the world. They are indistinguishable from the world. They belong to the world. Again, Sinclair Ferguson says, this is the hallmark of unbelief. The unbeliever is absorbed in this world. There is no sense of the eternal. There is no sense of divine purposes. There is no sense of seeking God's glory. But the concern is only with how things will be for me in this world. And so Jesus does not capitulate to the suggestion of his brothers. But as he submits to the timing of his heavenly father, we read that he goes to the feast at a later time and in a different manner. Not in a public display of power, but privately in humble reliance upon his Father in heaven, according to the will, the timing, and the glory of God. Would that this be true more and more in our own lives. And then we see, thirdly, the unbelief of the crowds at the feast. And the crowd that has gathered here at the feast, they display their unbelief in different ways. We read in verse 12 that some in the crowds were saying that Jesus is a good man. Now, at first, this might seem like a proper confession, but it's insufficient because, as John says, it's muttered under their breath. It's whispered to one another out of fear of the religious leaders, out of fear for what might happen to them if they identify themselves too closely with Jesus. Jesus is good. But I don't want to say it too loud. But it's not sufficient, you see, to think of Jesus merely as a good man, as only a good man. And why is this not possible? Because he never claimed to be just a good person, he claimed to be God. He made himself equal with God. He made a number of I am statements throughout John's gospel I am the bread of life, I am the good shepherd. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. Before Abraham was, I am. And in these I am statements, Jesus is bringing to mind Exodus chapter 3, in which the Lord God spoke to Moses from the unburning bush. Jesus takes these divine attributes upon himself, claiming self-existence, claiming eternality. His claims to divinity were clear, and frequent. It's amazing to me that someone can read John's gospel and come away saying, Where does Jesus claim to be God? I don't see it. Well, every Jewish member of the audience who was there listening to what he said he heard clearly his claim. This is why they wanted to kill him. A good person is not good if he claims to be God. He can be a good person if he claims to be God, and of course, if he is God incarnate. But to claim divinity and yet not be divine is the height of arrogance, and Jesus should then be dismissed as a wicked fool. But notice also in verse 12 that there are others in the crowd who have a different opinion of Jesus. He is leading people astray, he is a deceiver. What about this possibility? Is it possible that Jesus is a deceiver? Well, if he's a deceiver, there's only two ways, really, in which he could be deceiving the people, either intentionally leading the people astray, knowing that he is deceiving them, but not really caring, sort of like a Pied Piper of the ancient Near East, purposefully bringing confusion. But if he's purposefully confusing them, then what do we say about him? Well, again, he's a wicked person. Well, maybe he's not intentionally deceiving them. Maybe he's just confused about himself. Some of the people thought this in verse 20. You have a demon. You are deranged. You are deceived. You are deluded. Now, of all of the options today, this is probably the one that most people presume in our own time. Not that he was demon-possessed necessarily, but that Jesus was self-deluded. That he thought that he was God, but things went terribly wrong for him. And he was handed over and killed prematurely. He did a lot of good things. He loved a lot of people, but he was just confused over his own identity. But it doesn't work to think of Jesus as a deceiver or as a madman. Look at verses 25 and 26. They seek to kill him. He speaks openly, but no one says anything about him. And later we read in verses 45 and 46 that there are some officers that are sent to arrest Jesus, but as they listen to his words, they are amazed at his teaching. If Jesus is a madman, he is the most articulate, wise, godly madman who has ever lived, You have Jesus' disciples who follow him for three years and never find any fault with him, but instead see one who has fulfilled the law at every point, and then they are willing to die for him. You have people who are constantly coming into contact with him, even skeptical people who can't find anything wrong with his character or his teaching. You have people who criticize him from a distance, but then when they come and they spend time with him, they are utterly amazed at his words. There have been a lot of people throughout history who've made individual claims, outlandish claims about themselves, but their character fails to support those claims. We've been studying various major world religions in our senior high class on Sunday mornings, and what we've seen is that the founder of every major world religion has some sort of shady background, embezzlements, and self-interest sedition and hatred towards authority, sexual sin and a polygamous lifestyle, oppression and a controlling nature, delusions of grandeur and more. But you have none of this in Jesus. Instead, you have someone who exudes peace and compassion and love and care and concern, who teaches with authority, who is articulate and lucid, you don't have someone who is intentionally seeking to deceive people, nor do you have someone who is just full of himself. You have someone who makes the lame walk and the blind see, who calms the wind and the waves, who loves those who are lost, and who calls the broken to himself. This is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And so it won't work to call Jesus merely a good man. It won't work to call him a deceiver or self-deluded. But there's yet another option of those in the crowd, namely the religious leaders. There are those who have hidden anger toward Jesus, underlying rage and jealousy that flows from a heart of pride. Jesus goes to the temple and he begins to teach. And we read that the Jews marvel at what he says, but notice in verse 15 that there is this dismissive spirit toward his instruction. On the one hand, they can't help but acknowledge that Jesus teaches with authority, clarity and power, but he doesn't meet their criteria for authority. And so you see what they do is they deflect the words that Jesus says, trying to find a problem with his background. You might be making some good points there, Jesus, but where are your credentials? Where are your published works? You need others from the world to affirm you and to put their seal of approval upon you, or I really don't have any reason to listen. And so they demean him because he does not meet up to their standards of intellectual ability. And of course, the same continues today. You would believe in the words of a Jewish carpenter over someone who has studied philosophy, history, linguistics, ancient Near Eastern studies, biological sciences. Why don't you just turn on your brain and think for yourself? Intellectual pride is a huge source for unbelief. And very simply, there are many ways in which people might deflect Jesus in order to avoid acknowledging their true need. And so there's unbelief that comes from the crowds. Unbelief that comes from Jesus' brothers. Unbelief that comes from the religious leaders. But none of their arguments, none of their reasons for dismissing him hold any weight. And so in the end, fourthly, we are left with one inescapable option. That Jesus is who he says he is. That he is the Holy One of God. But you know that evidence enough is not sufficient to convince you of something. They saw the invalid walk as he carried his mat. They heard of the feeding of the 5,000 from credible sources. Perhaps some of those in the crowd here were recipients of that miraculous sign. The same objective facts were laid out before all of them, and yet their reactions are all over the map. But they all have unbelief in common. And why? Why does it seem like the vast majority are filled with indifference and hatred toward Jesus? Why does it seem like the vast majority of those in the world around us are filled with unbelief and hatred toward Jesus? Well, it's because we love the darkness rather than the light. Because our deeds are evil. Because the world does not want to be told that it must repent of its pride and rest in the Savior. Because without a work of sovereign grace bringing humility into your heart, you will remain in darkness, hardened against the Lord of glory. And so, the question I think that this text presses you to consider is this Do you see your need? Do you see your need for the Savior? Do you see that you are lost? Do you see that left to yourself, you will only possess unbelief in all sorts of various forms? And so the text calls you to confess your unbelief, to trust in him, to believe in his pardoning power, to rest in his transforming grace. In verse 17, Jesus says, if anyone chooses to do God's will, he will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. Well, how do we do God's will? What does it mean to do His will? Well, doing His will starts with believing in the one whom He has sent. It means living not according to the world's priorities, but living according to the timing of your Father in heaven, living for His glory. And the truth of Jesus cannot simply impact you theoretically. But the truth of Jesus must impact you personally and internally. Because if it's true that Jesus is who he says he is, the question is, what difference should that make in your life? If he is God in flesh who laid down his life for your sins, if life is found in him alone, then the question that we should always be asking ourselves is, How should that change my life? We read in verse 43 that there was division among the people over him. Division over what they should think of him. Division over what they should do with him. Division over how they should respond to him. And if you know your heart at all, you will freely acknowledge that there is continual division within your own life. As you continue to wrestle with the claims of Jesus and what it means to follow him wholeheartedly. Most of us find it easy to respond to Jesus, perhaps in a moderate manner. We give him little bits and pieces of our life where it's convenient, where it already fits with my own thinking and my own living. But he demands that we respond in life-transforming faith, that we reorient our lives completely, That we give Him absolute allegiance and loyalty. That we love Him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength to the point that the love that we have, even for our family, looks like hatred in comparison. But this is His call upon our life. Worship Him, rest in Him, delight in Him. Give him your life. Seek his glory above all else. May the Lord be pleased to take the eternal truth of his word and inscribe it upon our hearts.